Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. Tonight's special guest story is not just living proof that a lifetime of dedication can make a difference to the environment, but also to people. He started his scuba diving in 1958, could not afford to buy a regulator on an apprentice wage, so decided to build one himself. Les come from England as a 10-pound pom and a dedicated scuba diver. In 1968, together with his wife Fran, he started a dive centre at Terrigal Haven in New South Wales, Australia. Welcome to the show, living legend, one of the young fellas to the scuba diving community in Australia, Les Graham. How are you this evening, Les? Yeah, really good. It was my wife and I who came over a 10-pound pond. We'd been married 11 days, jumped on the fair star and had a month's honeymoon on the fair star. Oh, that sounds interesting. That was a good honeymoon. Can you remember your first scuba dive? I remember swimming across the swimming pool at Uxbridge in England. I tried to join the diving club while I was 15 and they wouldn't let me in until I was 16. They put a tank on my back and off I went across the swimming pool at Uxbridge. I thought, this is it. This is where I want to be. I was in love with the whole line pond. I can remember seeing Cousteau's uh, Silent World movie, our local cinema. I, I just got hooked on it. Just got hooked on the whole idea. Cousteau actually got me hooked onto it as well. So I understand where you're coming from. First uh, I would have been in a lake out in its flower in west, west of London, a place called Black Park Lake. I haven't got any, any record of it. I just know I did it. My wife, my late wife, we had her log when she first started. She talked about diving in uh, Black Park Lake the first dive when she started, which would have been about a year after me. Oh, wow. So I was working with a, a guy from Australia and he's on the next drawing board to me in the office. It was raining outside constantly and he said, you should come to Australia, mate. That was it. Hooked up through Australia house and away we came. Got married 11 days later, jumped on a boat. Beautiful. What's your best memory of diving? It's a hard one because all dives are good. I talk to people down in the haven and you say, what was it like? I physically is off. Can you see your hands underwater? Oh, yeah. Well, that, that's all you need. You just drop your horizon. Instead of looking around at the fish around you, look at the things that are underneath your fingers and you're in your fingertips, under the stones and things like that. Every dive's a good dive. It's a bit like beer, isn't it? There's only good beer and better beer. <laughs> That's the wrong way to look at it. You ever dive the coolie up in Vanuatu? Yeah, yeah, I have. Right. Karen and I would say the best dive was a scooter dive on the coolie. Coolie's on its side. We started off at the bow. What happened is we rolled onto our sides and that sort of mentally turned the boat up the right way. As you go down, it's like that opening sort of shots of the Titanic movie. You go across the foredeck, across the open hatches, up to the bridge and along the boat. And it's a really, it's a really, really big buzz. And we scooted all the way down to the stern. We talked before, before we went down, that what we were going to do on the bottom. I said, I'll get some photographs. And down at the bottom, at the back of the coolidge, you got 72 metres. I remember Fran saying, I'm not sure you want to go that deep. Anyway, I got down to the bottom, set myself up with a camera, and Fran sort of following me down um, as she came down towards me she went around in a circle about six or eight meters above <laughs> me and i can hear her sort of as she went past and i thought oh she's shitty well, i've gone dig and we, we said and anyway she went around again and i got this she went past the final pass was really close and as she came through past me through a regulator i could hear it say i can't turn the bloody thing off <laughs> <laughs> As, um, as she went past one of the bits of steel uprights on the on the shipwreck, her arm went out and she sort of clutched the side of that and the whole, the whole she sort of swung around that and the scooter hit it and turned itself off. Oh. And going back up, she, she was in game to start the thing up again, so she sort of swung up towards the surface. 
going in the bloody uh, the scooter along. And then when she got up to about yeah, 40 metres, she was going to turn it on. What it was, the casing of the, the, casing of the scooter, it walked under the pressure and, and jammed the switch on. So. Oh, wow. Very memorable dive. It really was. Now, Liz, being a sort of a local of Terrigal for such a long time, there's an anchor there. Do you know much about the history on the anchor of the wall there? Yes, I do. I put it there. You put it there? Yeah. It's a very, very large anchor. We found it. We were running a um, a course, an advanced course in Terrell, and teaching people how to use manta boards to do survey work. You use a manta board hanging onto a rope behind a boat? Yes, yes. Well, we were doing that. So I had two or three divers hanging off the back of the boat on, on manta boards. And when they came up, they said, hey, guess what we did? We saw this bloody great big anchor sticking out of the sand. It took us a couple of weeks to go round and round in circles to finally find the thing again. And sure enough, there's this sticking up out of the sand. I should say. I think it was about old inches in those days. It stood up about 30 inches to see off the bottom. So we decided we no good out there. Nobody's ever going to see it again. So we, we went out there with a dredge and cleared up the sand around the bait of the um, anchor. And uh, it was attached to this undergrade long heavy chain. So we decided, well, we're not going to get the thing out with the chain. So we got out there with hacksaws, took a group of us, taking it in turns. Pretty hard hacksaw underwater. And when you're going through a, a piece of steel about 15 mil thick, and we took it in turns to hacksaw through the uh, steel, and finally we got it cut off. You're going through an anchor, a chain. There's two links you've got to cut. It's not one, you know, it's two pieces to a chain. I got hold of a, a two-ton lift bag and we hooked it up to the uh, anchor, lifted it up out of the sand, and lo and behold, as it came up, there was only about another three links of chain anyway. We didn't, didn't have cut it all off. We got the anchor up and we floated across to the reef and deposited it on the reef where you've seen it. It was interesting. Everybody looks at it and said, wow, this looks good. How the hell did it get there? We saw it try to tell people the story. And we didn't realise what the connection was until some years later, there was an article in our local newspaper that got some star. It was a page out of a, a very early Gossard star back in the, 19, the 1920s. Somebody had written to the star letter talking about um, how Gossip or Erina Shire Council should preserve some of the um, subtropical rainforest around the valleys around Terrigal for future tourism. So this is a ahead of his time. Within this article, he then mentioned, he talked about remembering the mooring out in the middle of Terrigal Bay for the sailing ships that would come up from Sydney, bringing provisions for the, um, the local areas, you know, Terrigal, Boca and places like that. If you think about what happens if you're bringing a boat up from Sydney, you want a following wind of southerly. To come up, but once you get up to Terrigal, you've got to get into the beach and can't go very hard against the wind. So you tie up to this mooring buoy and wait till the morning when the, the wind drops. You can get a, a rowboat to tow you into the beach, and then in reverse, once you've loaded up with timber, they, they used to cut um, timber around the, the lakes at Terrigal, mainly cedar, take that all down for house building down in Sydney. Much the same thing in reverse. They would they would have a southerly wind, which they allow them to move off Terrigal Haven. They'd tie up the mooring buoy, and then the next day, with any sort of luck, but the nor'easter, they'd use that wind to go down to, uh, down to Sydney. Anyway, that sort of answered what the, what the boy was doing out there. And when I told our local mayor, Harrison, who was a doctor and also a scuba diver, she said, oh, this would be fantastic. We could we could get this out and stick it up in the park at the Haven and change the name of the Haven Park to Lord Ashley um, Park or something because of the, the record of Lord Ashley just off the outside Terrigal Haven. Well, we got onto the Department of Heritage and they said, oh, yeah, sounds a great idea. We'll send you all the information 
on how to preserve the anchor. Well, this water paper work came into the council and it talked about how you did it, what chemicals you needed, how many pairs of gloves you needed for council staff to handle it and not get acid all over their hand. And I went out for pages of it. And I know the council would do that lot dead enough. Nah, we'll leave it in the water. <laughs> So it didn't get it didn't get hauled out, but it's out there. It's a, it's a significant thing. I actually put a um, chain on it at one time, stainless steel chain that went out to the Lord Ashley wreck. It was good for a while. It showed people where the wreck was. They could, oh wow! They could find the wreck easily and then find their way back to the anchor. But the stainless steel wasn't the highest quality stainless steel. It only lasted about a year and corroded away. That's the story of the anchor. It's a it's a noticeable mark. It's there. Everybody sees it, and they know they're they're on their way back into the haven. When they get when they go past it, that's good. Story about the one fluke was interesting. I was running a charter boat in Sydney Harbour. I went past Balmain Point, and there's an identical anchor up in the grass there in the park, and it's got one fluke. Afterwards, we realised if you were setting an anchor that you were putting to the bottom, the last thing you want is it's one fluke in the sand, another fluke standing up, getting caught with anchor chains and ropes and things like that. So you have a one fluke anchor. You put it down on the bottom, drag it down under the sand, one flukes under the sand and the anchor's laying flat on the bottom with nothing sticking up. They're originally made like that. Well, thanks for that. Now, a lot of people that go diving there will know exactly how it got there. The council put too many rules and regulations, so it didn't end up in the park. The Department of Heritage came up with the rules and regulations. Oh, I was there. I knew it was some government department. It's the same. Look, it's the same way as you've got the wreck of the Lord Ashley just off the rocks around from the haven. When we first got there, there was an inscription in the rocks and I've got a photograph of my wife sitting there running her finger through it what actually lost September the 4th 1877 you see but that's gone it's worn away over the like 50 years we've been there it's quite you can't see it anymore I remember talking to the Department of Heritage about it and I said what you need to do is get a, a, a stonesmith if you like to come and chisel out that, that inscription in the rocks and the fellow from the Department of Heritage Tim Smith said oh we can't do that we can't do that I said why not but it's historical you know we, we can't touch that it's gone you know the only thing we can do is put a sign up on the rocks up on the cliff with an arrow that points down that says the used to be a sign here that were an inscription here for the shipwreck. I said, you can't do it. It's sort of stupid. He said, I the only way we can do it. I said, look, tell me if I'm wrong, but there's a a, uh, a chapel in Italy somewhere. I said, it's got a, a big painting up on the ceiling of this, of this chapel, Sistine Chapel. And I said, I bet they don't let that painting wear away. They get up there and they, they recover it and they look after it and so forth. Think of what the Sistine Chapel would be like with a sign down on the ground which points up the ceiling and says, guess what? There used to be a painting up there, but we can't, we don't look after it. Um, I heard a rumor that you back in the 60s and your wife Fran used to um dive with the underwater research group of New South Wales. Is that correct? We joined it within about two weeks of getting into Australia. Oh, you waited that long, two weeks. It's called the Underwater Research Group of New South Wales, the arm of the Australian Museum, because in those days they didn't have divers, and so they used the Underwater Research Group to collect specimens that scientists overseas had asked for from, from Australia. See, most weekends we'd have a job to do to look for this type of coral, this type of sponge and things like that and collect this and deliver them back to the museum be sent overseas. Back in the mid-70s, I suppose, they actually employed divers at the museum to go and do their work for them. But the, it was good work. It was good fun with the underwater research group to start off with. The underwater research group was a, a very, very good club. It had been diving since about 1956. There was a lot of well-known divers in here. Clary Lawler virtually ran it. Neville Coleman, who many divers were having, shell books 
uh, marine light books. Steve Parrish, a very famous underwater photographer, but mainly a, a wildlife photographer, and his stuff regularly appears in uh, Facebook. These sorts of people, they were the backbone of the, of the underwater research group, the IG. And it sparked my interest in marine life, because being an English diver, all you're interested in England was shipwrecks and lobsters. The IG was a classic. He tried to educate all his members on, on marine life, and they did a very, very good job. So you were the original citizens science underwater group we would be if you think about it that way yeah yeah we never thought about it feels like that we was just a, what are we doing on it this sunday's dive oh we've got to go to ship rock in sydney and oh we did a 24-hour diving research project at ship rock which is quite a famous dive site in sydney measuring what fish are there what fish are asleep which ones are awake whether the telestos as i was which is a soft coral yep. was out or closed and things like that he did a dive on it about every half an hour for 24 hours we were talking in to go down and measure things and take photographs. It's very good. So these sorts of projects the club got up to. They do all sorts of things. What was your most favourite project that you did with the club? Oh, probably those, those sort of things, those 24-hour surveys and stuff like that. Collecting sponges for a professor from New Zealand, so she could name a lot of the sponges off the coast here. But a lot of our sponges had no names at that point. She was researching that sort of stuff. The best one was uh, the beginning of the Crown of Thornless problems. There was an organisation formed up called the Ave the Reef Committee and I, I was vice president of that we set up a, a study to go and count the best we could crown of thornless infestations on the on the reef and so we had something like 80 divers camped on an island off Bowen called Holbert Island and each day half the group would go out and be towed around on manta boards counting crown of thorns. You had counters on these manta boards. One side would click for a feeding scar and the other side would click for how many crown of thorns we could see and we'd do that half the day and then go down and do more research counting in transit down the rings and things like that. And the next day we rest. The other crowd of divers were going to go out the next day. We were out there for two weeks doing and that survey work. We repeated it a year later where more boats and more divers but this time we based it not on camping we based it all on various charter boats oh, and the Navy was involved on that as well and the Navy divers are good fun they towed along behind boats on mad boards but after a while they got a bit fed up with it and they discovered it was good fun to do barrel rolls with mad boards and things like that and you were all volunteers? Oh, yeah. Joe Bielke Dickinson in those days was very much he didn't want to have anything that gave bad stories about the Barrier Reef and I remember him getting headlines in the paper which said 80 divers scale the barrier reef and find only half a dozen ground of thorns which is true because we started where we thought the southern edge was and then work our way up from that but no crown of thorns to where it became really heavily infestated so we had this headline x number of divers scale the barrier reef and only find half a dozen crown of thorns it wasn't true when, when we went further north it just got worse and worse and worse so how did you feel when you saw the crown of thorns it was really bad when we first discovered them like this and it was interesting because they suddenly started to be discovered in other locations so first discovered by the british red sea expedition in the red sea oh. they first discovered these infestations we've got them over here as well yeah we've got them here we've got there yeah, we've got them on that barrier reason people noticed them in fiji and places like that the question is were the infestations getting worse 
old, it was more scuba divers going out and finding them. I used to own a diving centre in Fiji. The crown of thorns were spreading out from the southwest corner of Fiji, gradually working their way out to Mana Island. And we looked at our reef there. There was no way in the world that we could keep all the crown of thorns off there. So what we did is we selected one, one strip of coral reef close to the island. We had the local staff from the hotel diving for them every day, spearing them, bringing them out of the water and burying them up on the beach and killing them off that way. That went on for about, oh, nearly a year, I suppose. And the crown of thorns infestation went past Mana Island and carried on into further reefs a bit further. We were left with this absolutely pristine, probably three, four hundred metres of coral reef off the island there, which we protected from the crown of thorns. It was good. And what changes have you seen underwater over the years? Have you seen it improve or, you know, like not improve? Or has it been mixed in different areas? It's been mixed in different areas. Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority, which was formed in about 1970. Before that, there was a situation where the ocean seabed off the coast were under the control of the state governments, and which was wrong. It should come under the heading of the of protection of the federal government. And so there was a um, federal election that took place. Actually, it was a, uh, a double dissolution. So what they came up with the, is the Sea and Submerged Lands Act, which took the, the undersea areas of the coast off the states, put in the hands of the um, federal government. We had to find an area that was a terrestrial park and declare as a marine park. And if you live locally, you may have heard of Budai Marine Park. That was the very first marine park in Australia. We declared it, it was, so the state government declared it as a marine park. It meant it had to be encompassed in the Sea and Submerged Lands Act, that there had to be provision within that act for marine parks. We had Budai Marine Park, first marine park declared in Australia. But that allowed for the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park to use that that legislation to start its job up. So that's how the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park they do a good job. They look after the reef. They they protect it. They move. They move their protected areas around so that certain areas um, are protected for a, a year or four or five years, and then move it to another area and things like that. So they deal they're around the Capricorn Bunker Group where Heron Island is. The, the Marine Park Authority does does the right job. And what do you think about marine parks in general? Do you reckon we should have more marine parks in New South Wales? Yes. Yes, that was a pretty quick answer. Over the years I've been diving and fishing, the, the catches have been reduced and there's far less fish around than there used to be. So you need those protected areas. And of course, this is like red rag to a bull when you talk. The commercial fishermen have no problems because they know what the problems are. But the amateur fishermen, none. they really blow out of the dark when you mention marine parks. Yeah, you need, you do need marine parks. The fishermen heads, they really do. They see as they're being locked out. Yes. All we have to do, and you can do it nowadays, we, now we've all got GPS on our boats, you could do it by going along the coast and putting a line from the shore out to, shall we say, 10 miles out to sea and protecting that whole area 10 nautical miles wide. And then you'd have an area that was closed and then an area that was open. Then an area was closed and an area is open. And nowadays with GPSs, everybody would know where these lines are and they could, could obey them. What you could do, you could run, let it run for 10 years then swap them all around yeah. and see what happens so you have a, a change from protected to unprotected people. So that that would be the best way and most people with boats wouldn't worry about having to travel another 4 or 5 nautical miles up the coast or down the coast to get into a, an unprotected area it'll work that's an excellent idea I like that and you've got to think think out of the square as I say you know yes and Les, what is um, SY Tequila Sunrise 2? 
at my yacht in the Mediterranean. Oh, fantastic. Some years ago, back in 2005, my wife and I bought this boat or bought into this boat with the plans in those days of selling the dive shop and uh, becoming water gypsies for the rest of our lives. That's what we planned. And then we got heavily involved in getting the shipwreck of the uh, Adelaide off Terrible. We got the Adelaide sink. By then, my wife had contracted a brain tumor and died. So she saw it goes down and never got to dive in. She was very cranky about it. Very cranky. Oh, bugger. Um, but I still got the yacht. I'd rather have the wife, but I've got the yacht. It's in Turkey. Um, I go over there for six months a year and live on the yacht. Go sailing. you got a yacht in the Mediterranean. You've always got friends. <laughs> Oh, that's good. Beautiful. And I'd like to get back to um, the samples that you had for um, the Australian Museum, because I find that actually fascinating, like back in the 60s that you were collecting samples. Was there anything very unusual that you found for the museum back then? We were all sort of beginning at this. We were being guided by a couple of fellows from, from the museum itself. We were learning as we went, you know what I mean? Yeah. Go down and measure there's a plate of coral off there on, for example. We used to go down and... Um, um, it's called Coast and Area, like knee-like. We occasionally go down a few months and measure the, the diameter of this. It's a size of a dining room table. And in fact, it's a very, very slow-growing coral. It's a case of measuring things like that. Somebody wanted to, might want a collection of, of sea urchins, different types, to send back to Germany or whatever it happens to be. If you saw a typical of overseas, this, this sort of idea that everything in Australia is going to bite you or scratch you or kill you. <laughs> as soon as some, some guy died from a, a blue ring doctor's fight, it was sort of worldwide coverage, you know, so there was a case of those, and then there was a, a sea urchin that we discovered that it again was a new one. We discovered it was discovered it was oh wow, and it's not like the normal black one that you see when you're diving, and it's a white one with very short tentacles but very feathery tube feet all around it. Do you still dive today? Not as much as I should do. I, I like diving when I'm diving with a purpose. Yeah, when I was teaching, I thoroughly enjoyed teaching people to dive. It's one of the most satisfying things you can get you can do you get people come around even now i'll bump into some like oh you're great yeah. i did your diving course in 1975 or something you know it's great to run into these people is the most satisfying thing in the world to teach people taking them from non-divers completely to becoming scuba divers and off they go and they spend the rest of their lives diving and taking photographs there there was a girl we taught to dive, Lizanne McGregor. She was the CEO of the um, Museum of Contemporary Art down there at Circular Key. And um, I remember, if it wasn't for Fran, for looking after her and teaching her to dive, we would have never enjoyed ourselves for the last 10 years going all over the world and going diving everywhere. You know, these people get hooked on it and they, they dive and it's, it's really satisfying. Is there any famous people that you've taught that you've seen on the news or bucked into or any politicians that you've taught to dive or anything like that? Yeah, I'm not too sure whether I want to admit to what teaching politicians <laughs> to dive. I'd be wary of that in some respect. One politician, a good man, Rishulgi, and he was Deputy Premier of New South Wales back in the Bob Carr's Parliament. He was a keen diver. I didn't teach him, but I did teach his son. Probably still a member of the our local diving club, Terrigal Underwater Group. When we got word that the government was trying to offload the Brisbane singers of Shipwreck, the department in the Navy, which is Naval Disposals, we had a meeting with that guy there. He said, oh, look, what you got to do is get people on side and newspapers on side and they 
councils on the side and everything else. It's a long job, you know. I spoke to the two or three of my friends. I said, look, leave it with me. I phoned up Andrew Shogg in the next morning. I said, how would you like to die on the wreck of the, this coach is going to be the Brisbane? And he said, it's been sunk yet. I know. I said, but it could be. He said, you better get down here. And a couple of guys went down to his office. And he came into the office and said, best thing going. And when I spoke to a fellow called Galately, who was the head of the Premier Department, talked to him about it in his office. He said, oh, this sounds fun. He said, I've got just a guy to run the project. Called in a fellow called um, ex-rear admiral Chris Oxenbold, who said, oh, I skipped that boat. Geez, it'd be good fun to sink that off Terrible. We can visit the government that they go flat out to try and get a wreck off Terrible in half a day. <laughs> It was great. It took a lot of work after that. And Peter Beatty mucked around and mucked around. And finally, the Brisbane went up to the, the Sunshine Coast. And we were then promised the Canberra Prime Minister of the day decided that he'd get more boats out of giving the XHMA Canberra to uh, some divers down in, in Geelong. So we lost that one. But we, we were promised the Adelaide. And that's what we got. Oh, that's cool. Things just took time. That's all. It's a lovely dive. It's the only dive did. Yes, yes, I have. It's a great dive. And he's done everything we said he would do. It was, it was set up to, to be a marine reserve what we had to do was survey the local reefs around it we worked with the university up there at newcastle go around all the surrounding reefs to find out in the middle of this patch of sand where we're going to get the ship sink the adelaide how far it was away from any other reefs because we didn't want fish from other reefs coming and landing on the adelaide we wanted to let the adelaide start off as, as a barren piece of superstructure and see if the marine life grew on it. That's what we did. There was a lot of research done around that wreck when it first went down. The first idea is it was it was dived very, very heavily by the scientists who um, counted the fish and appendix along the boat and around the boat and counted all the, the fish life and marine life. And uh, it's done exactly what we've done. It didn't seem to suck fish from adjacent reefs. It started its own colony of fish. We actually started a colony of very quickly. The first thing it colonised it was squid and cuttlefish. Everywhere you swam, there was all, all these cuttlefish eggs and squid eggs hanging off the rail. They were the first colonisers. The local marine life sort of moved across onto it, and uh, it's a superb dive site now. Got covered in some beautiful soft corals called Coronacus australia. They're very, very colourful. They're not a coral. They're sort of halfway between a coral and an anemone. Oh, wow. And they come in four different basic colours, so they, they look really beautiful. Like a coral, they've got a calyx hangs onto the shipwreck and then the tentacles was come out from that. You look at it you think it might be a coral, it's not it's actually technically up and an emanating. It's beautiful and they're beautiful colours all around the wreck. Everywhere you look there's colonies all over the wreck nowadays. We're going to have you back Les and we'll talk more about this. Thank you very much for your time. You're a living legend, young fella of the scuba diving community in Australia and we really appreciate you sharing your stories with us today. And thank you for being a citizen science when citizens science wasn't even citizen science we didn't think of it was like that it was just that you didn't dive just to swim around looking at scenery you went there to gather this or measure that and, and do things like that you know what i mean that was the best thing about it you've been listening to citizen 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 science citizen science show